0: Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: Carl Weinberg is the founder of and the chief economist at High Frequency Economics. He's here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios, and it's great to see you as always. Let's start with the data this week, what you're looking for for especially, I mean, industrial production tomorrow, I imagine that's a big one uh, you'll be paying attention to this week.
2: Yeah, I mean, we think the industrial production number is probably going to turn out okay based on the surveys that we're seeing. You know, the economy is uh, chugging along. You know, we're not going to see any great numbers out of industrial production, though. Uh, You know, we're looking about maybe seven-tenths of a percent uh, for the month at high frequency. That's a little bit more than the consensus. Uh, But uh, overall, you know, the economic growth numbers are not going to knock anybody's socks off anytime soon. We're only looking for about, you know, two-plus percent uh, growth for the year, and uh, that's not going to be a scary number for most people.
1: we have the House of Representatives back in session in Washington, D.C. Uh, this week they were off last week. The Senate was there; they were not. Uh, what's your sense of what's happening in Washington right now, the degree in which that's that's influencing the direction of this uh, economy in
2: the U.S.? Wow. Well, you know. We're- <laughs> I don't really know exactly how to go at that uh, answer, you know, without going getting into the politics of it. You know, the uh, the Comey affair has uh, turned into a big distraction, and uh, we had been skeptical at High Frequency Economics about uh, the prospects for a lot of fiscal stimulus to begin with, for a really strong uh, tax reform package to begin with, and now with all of these distractions, we're even more skeptical. So we're in the process of marking down, you know, it only takes a tenth of a percent or two tenths off of GDP growth, but when you're only growing at two and a half percent, you, you can't can't really afford to lose a lot of it, and, and we think we might see a little bit of tax cuts coming up, but no major tax reform as anybody had hoped for, and not the big, inf- not very little of the big infrastructure spending that people had been looking for just a few months ago.
1: What's distracting the the Federal Reserve right now as they push ahead to their next uh, meeting, and they're looking at all of the data that we've gotten recently? Indeed, the data will get here before they gather again in the Eccles
2: building. What's uh, what's uh, preoccupying them? Well, their eyes are crossed right now. You know, <laughs> they're looking at you know a lot of inconsistencies. They're looking at you know an unemployment rate that's at their level of Nauru. They're looking at inflation numbers that aren't delivering the inflation that you would expect to see, and they're looking at an economy that should be growing, even though you know interest rates are down at zero right now. So uh, they are uh, at a lot of different things. I think their core belief is that at the end of the day, the laws of supply and demand haven't been repealed. That their job is to protect the country from the worst possible outcome, which given their mandate is not a recession as much as it is an overshoot of inflation. So with rising risks of inflation on the horizon, we think they're going to be responding to reducing this chance of the worst possible outcome given their mandate.
0: Oh yeah, back in the New York studio. I remember where the red button is. <laughs> yeah, <Excuse self-op>. <laughs> Who's the guy to my right? Good morning, sir.
1: Were you gone? Yeah. <laughs> oh.
0: <laughs> it is one of the great early successes of boston biotechnology thermo fisher scientific certificates fifty-five thousand employees out of scenic waltham uh massachusetts and they've got themselves a new transaction it's a seven billion dollar deal two billion debt it's not that big but it's just what thermo fisher has done thermo scientific has done david gura uh, for years i i remember the i was like who are these guys who are these guys and they have just built and built and built this thing forever. Thermo Fisher takes up Pathion as well, $7 billion. Uh, David, you know, it, it's good to be here. I, Welcome you know, back. It's nice to have a global cyber attack. <laughs> so we got something to talk about besides the administration.
1: Uh, what did you come back? You came back Friday right after the show?
0: Uh, British Airways did it right,
1: actually. Okay. And
0: what, what was sad was the pilots actually listened to us. Yeah. I met the pilots and they, <laughs> they, know, la- they allowed him in the cockpit. They did no one, they no did, dragging off of yeah, the They point. did the, one of those YouTube <laughs> landings at JFK. Where they came in a little bit sideways in the pouring rain. We thank uh, them for landing the beast uh, on the ground. Carl Weinberg knows about shear. There's wind <laughs> shear within the economy. Where's the risk now for the U.S. economy? Is it... A lack of investment is it this this colossal reality? We may not get wage growth. What's the the wind shear out there for this economy?
2: You know, I am a pilot and I can explain I that, that that crooked landing to you. If we, you we were doing it. We were, <laughs> we were looking at Connecticut when we landed. In, in great detail. You know, the risk to the U.S. economy. I think first of all, from uh, I'm the international guy at High Frequency Economics, yep. so I look overseas. You know, and we're looking at a world where the IMF's forecast of accelerating growth just isn't happening, and most of their hopes at the uh, IMF annual meetings for an acceleration of world growth over the next two years was that the emerging world was going to pick up the pace and they're growing their bigger share of world GDP now so they matter and they do but now with commodity prices on the downswing and I don't consider 50 52 dollars an oil barrel as being an upswing I consider it to be a downswing we're seeing their incomes being trimmed again that's a hit to world trade that's a hit to their ability to import and that's a hit to our ability to export so to me the from as the international guy at high frequency economics to me that's where the biggest threats are right now
1: Help us understand what's going on with, with OPEC. We saw it tick up a little bit, could be the, the broader downturn you're talking about generally, but did see oil prices move on, on reports that um, there was going to be an agreement, perhaps a longer agreement than was expected to extend the, the production cuts. What, what's the influence that, oil, that OPEC plays right now in oil, oil prices?
2: Well, the influence that OPECs pays right now is that they have don't have an influence, and that their ability to influence prices is increasingly decreasing with the rise of not just shale oil producers in the United States, but emerging market oil everywhere. You know, they are now a much smaller part of the world oil market than they were in the 1970s. And the adaptation or the consequence of that is that with everybody pumping the stuff up, there's more supply than demand. Uh, the OPEC ministers talk about getting inventories back down to the levels of the last five years. But that's the wrong bar oil prices have tumbled yeah. over the last five years hitting that bar. The real metric is that compared to the last 20 years average, OECD inventories are over their normal range for 20 years. By 10 days of supply, that's half a billion barrels of oil ready to come to market. And if their deal between Russia and uh, Saudi Arabia manages to keep you know, a million barrels a day off of the market, we're still more than a year away from just getting inventories back down to normal, and their deal probably doesn't make even in that much of a difference because everybody right. ramped up production beforehand.
0: We're going to come back with Carl Weinberg, a high-frequency economics. Right now, we speak with Commander Weinberg on th- runway component thrust vector. Captain, Captain, they,
2: Captain Weinberg. Ca-
0: excuse me, Captain <laughs> Weinberg. And they, and they, they, they crab.
2: They crab they the airplane, land? that's right. What does that mean? It means that they turn the airplane into the wind so that it tracks along the runway and then at the last minute they straighten it out so that it hits with the wheels pointing down the runway instead of toward the terminal too soon so you go pfft, off the runway.
0: Do they do do they, they do it manually on like a big plane like a 747? I would say the
2: odds of them flying it manually would be very low. It would depend on the currency of the captain, who has to do certain number of manual right. landings. But for the most part, they depend on the machines. The machines are so much better. In the machines,
0: do that tilting into the
2: wind. The technology on these aircraft, these airbuses, and these uh, Boeing airplanes, are just absolutely incredible. Auto land is what it's called. How, land, many, how many
0: degrees do they go when they crab? Well, is depend, it, it depends. Five degrees? On, it depends. It feels on the like wind. it's
2: forty. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you were landing in a forty-knot wind, it wouldn't be quite as much as that, but it might be substantial. But the plane's coming in at a hundred and forty knots, and if they have a ten or a fifteen-knot crosswind component, they're probably not going to have to crab all that much. Glad, that, you, well, glad you're
0: here, why, Tom. I mean, this is why we love to have these guests on.
2: Have you two Are self-driving together? planes?
1: Self-driving planes. Uh, yeah, that's the future. No, nah,
2: I don't think so. So All Tom way.
0: Tom
1: could
2: land one of these planes, is what you're saying? No. You, you, <laughs> my <laughs> wife says that in our airplane, that the way that I fly is I push buttons until it does what I want it to do. And that's more or less what these guys on the big planes are doing. I feel
0: like I'm with Hap Arnold
2: or something. <laughs> this is the founder of
0: American Aviation. Did you know David girl, Hap Arnold, his first flight was with the Wright Brothers? Didn't. In Dayton, <laughs> God Ohio. God. That is so cool. <laughs> This is your surveillance aviation moment. Uh, Carl Weinberg, that was fabulous because all of us have confronted this bad weather in one of these big airplanes. We'll come back with Dr. Weinberg and talk about international economics and the state of America. Carl, there was a jewel at the Fed 20 years ago out of MIT named one Carl Whalen. Carl Whalen was fabulous. He's now at the uh, Irish Central Bank. And he wrote a paper, which I remember, called Real Wage Dynamics and the Phillips Curve. That's where we are right now. If we get a better economy, does inflation go up faster than real wages go up, where all of our listeners are going to feel miserable because their inflation-adjusted wages go flat or down?
2: You know someone else was talking about that on Bloomberg this morning and I nearly drove off the road Ugh. when I heard it. You know, the, Was it John? No, it wasn't. It was it was super early. I think it was one of those guys on the other side of the pond. <laughs> you know, when you have inflation, inflation is a parallel uh, in- increase in both prices all prices and wages at the same time. So real incomes stay the same. Savers are poorer, spenders (laughs) are richer, and there's an incentive to spend more when there's inflation because you want to buy that refrigerator or that house today before the price goes up. And that's the traditional analysis of inflation. It's a windfall for some but at the expense of savers. Is
0: it a windfall for our listeners who are out there working in the real world? They're going to get a 3% pay raise is an inflation going to make that evaporate?
2: It's going. To, if, if it's a true inflation, we're going to make it evaporate. But Tom, I'm just going to be critical here. You know, the world has gotten into this notion that CPI increases our inflation, and they're not. All right, CPI, I'm not putting on my pointy-headed economist yeah. out here. Well, we want right, that on a Monday. Right. But every time, every time the CPI goes up, all right, doesn't mean there's inflation. Every time there's inflation, the CPI goes up. But say the price of gasoline goes up, all right? That's a price change relative to everything else that makes people poor, actually, because right. their wages don't kay. go up. David Blanchflower
0: would know about money illusion. Blanchflower-Oswald wage curve, which was done at the time of the Wayland paper, really suggests some pain within
2: society. Are we going to see that? Well, if we, if we get a true inflation, we will see that. Right? right now, what we're all dissecting is an acceleration of the CPI. And if we don't see a parallel and proportionate acceleration of wages to match it, then workers will either be better off or worse off, but always at the expense of someone else, like either capitalists, God forbid, or savers, which is more serious. With such a big baby boomer generation now approaching retirement, you start reducing the present purchasing value of their savings, then you get into a situation where a big segment of society is worse off.
1: Uh, yesterday, the new president of France put on a snappy new suit and rode around Paris in an open-air Jeep. Today, I think he meets with his German counterpart. How much does the European economy change now with his uh, election? We had uh, more state elections in Germany over the weekend. Does your outlook for the European economy change as a result of what we've seen uh, in France and in Germany over these last two weekends?
2: Well, I think the betting has been on Macron for some time now. So I think that there's no surprise to the markets this morning, right out of the box. So thinking longer term, one of the issues that uh, Tom and I were discussing earlier today is this question of can uh, Macron and Angela Merkel agree on what to do about England? And this, I think, is the, the most immediate question in front of everybody. All right? At stake, the biggest jewel out there is the city. Will they allow the city to continue to exist? Will they want that business for Paris, very high taxes, of course, or Frankfurt? much more uh, of a friendly environment for these kinds of businesses. And the British, of course, are concerned because uh, uh, 15 percent of the U.K. economy comes from the city and two million jobs are associated with the financial sector. Those are Mark Carney's numbers. Mm. So uh, I think that, to me, the real question moving forward, what I want to see is what comes out of their meeting today and their subsequent communications on the Brexit question. That's the big elephant in the room.
1: Uh, Very quickly here, uh, we have the snap election come up here on June June the 8th. Are we starting to see effects of Brexit playing out in the UK uh, economy now?
2: Well, Tom was just over there, uh, and I think he's probably got a bigger sense of it than I do. But certainly sitting over on this side of the pond, it looks to me like this election is a slam dunk. It just validates the national commitment to proceed with Brexit. I think there was a gray cloud put over that by some of the stuff that came out, the court challenges and all that. And I think uh, Prime Minister May needs that unanimity behind her in order to be able to confront the Europeans, I don't think it'll help her any, but it certainly puts her in a better position than she otherwise might have been.
0: I don't know what was better, David Gura, Carl Weinberg on crosswind vectors at JFK or on the wage curve. Crosswinds and and gray clouds
1: with Carl Weinberg here. Michael Cannon joins us now. He's the director of health policy studies at the Cato Institute. And I'll uh, read from an op-ed he wrote recently for The Hill. He said, the reality is that Republicans are not repealing Obamacare. They're making it worse and offering to take the blame for its failures, which will ultimately cement that law in place. A bleak assessment of where things stand here on Capitol Hill. Uh, Michael Cannon, great to see you once again. Let's, Let's start with the state of play. Uh, this is out of the House 's hands now it moves on to the Senate. Are you at all more optimistic that a law that you would like to see could be crafted by Senators there? What do you think is the the status of health care reform of health care reform in Washington right now? Well, I think you have to start with what
3: 's happening in the marketplace yeah. right now, which is we 're seeing insurers flee the Obamacare exchanges to the point where or you have some parts of the country where uh, there are no carriers in the exchanges after December. And there are lots of, lots more parts of the country where there's only one carrier in the exchanges, so there's just one insurer exit away from having no exchange plans there. And the carriers that are remaining are asking for premium increases on the order of 50%. That's, uh, that comes out of Maryland, where Blue Cross Blue Shield has asked for that, on top of all the past year's increases, like 25%, 27%. And, and so this is obviously unsustainable. And... The House didn't show much of an appetite for really repealing Obamacare. They want to leave in place the regulations that are causing all this instability, causing these premium increases. And uh, it's unsure that the Senate has any more of an appetite for that. So it may have to get worse before it gets better. We may have to see more of these premium increases, more of these market collapses, more people going without health insurance to help them pay for the medical care they need before Congress focuses on what the real problem is, which are these Obamacare regulations that are –
1: really destroying healthcare for some people. So here's my question about uh, those companies pulling out of these Obamacare uh, exchanges. How much of that has to do with problems with the law and the marketplace itself versus just the uncertainty of the conversation about health care reform continuing? If, if the CEO of Aetna, says, say, uh, cites the fact that there's uncertainty in the air, uh, it, it seems like that's being contributed to or driven by the fact that uh, there's still so much legislative uncertainty surrounding Obamacare, at least in part. Do you agree with that? Well, yeah, that's certainly a part of it, but the 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 centerpiece of Obamacare is a series of uh,
3: system of uh, government price controls that that destabilizes the market. Remember when the uh, Obama administration went to the Supreme Court, they said, "Well, you can't block the individual mandate because Obamacare will destroy health insurance markets if mm-hmm. you do that." So, so the the core of this law destabilizes insurance markets, and you need all sorts of subsidies in order to then stabilize the markets. And and the yeah. and those subsidies were not authorized, or a lot of them weren't, as of one. Uh, federal right. judge told us.
0: Were you in that photo shoot at the White House? <laughs> did they invite you to the?
3: <laughs> well, uh, I, I, N- at the Resolute no. Desk? No. no you yeah. know, <laughs> unless you have evidence, I'm just going to deny that. <laughs> what deny. did
0: you think of that? The, they took a victory lap before the thing even got to the Senate. Mission uh, it, it, accomplished. It did, seem,
3: it did seem bizarre. Yeah, it seemed like a mission accomplished moment because they were having this Rose Garden um, yeah. uh, press conference to celebrate House passage of a bill, which is, you know, that's usually the sort of thing you uh, you. You hold after the bill passes. You have a signing ceremony, and that's when you invite everyone to. uh, I think that the Trump administration was desperate for a win.
0: Okay, I'll I'll go with that. In your essay, you got a beautiful quote from President Clinton on the challenges of his Obamacare. I get that. Who's in support of Michael Cannon health economics? Who of those bodies— on Capitol Hill, want your vision of where we should go.
3: Well, there are people who uh, who have introduced uh, the health savings account expansion idea that I put forward a number of years ago that would be a bigger tax cut than the Reagan and Bush tax cuts combined. Jeff Flake in the Senate, Dave Bratt in the House have introduced Jeff Flake that.
0: gets the, the music. And yeah.
3: and then and, and there are others. There are other members of Congress who are working on uh, legislation right mm-hmm. now that would be that would actually okay. repeal and replace Obamacare and they're Let's trying to get that into the
0: debate. David Gurren, Tom Keene Michael Cannon of Cato, truly one of the nation's experts on healthcare. Michael, CNN's got it, and we thank CNN for this. And it's the usual person who really needs health care coverage. She has cancer in Tennessee quote, it's that or die, so what else would you do? Which I think is a question for a lot of us. You mentioned earlier East Tennessee is an example of where this is not working out. Where are we going to be in one year?
3: And her name is Melissa Nance, and she has an advanced form of leukemia. How and, did you know she, that? I, I know all. So, uh, yeah. uh, so, And Melissa is one of those people who is uh, having their access to care threatened by the instability created by Obamacare's regulations. Now, if Melissa has a pre-existing condition— in a decent society, if she can't afford the medical care that she needs, we should do something to help her. We used to do that, that, right? But that has to be stable. Well, you know, there are a lot of people falling through the cracks of the U.S. healthcare sector, but that has to be a stable system of assistance. And Obamacare is not that. Does Trump care help that? No, actually, makes it worse. Uh, she, she, and people like her would be, in, I think, even worse shape under Trump care because you'd have a race to the bottom, e- e- even for those who have coverage.
1: What's the, the, the motivation as you see it for structuring and completing and voting upon the law that Republicans in the House uh, voted on? Are you, are you a, a cynic who thinks this is all about politics or do you believe that there are Republicans who thought in good faith that they were uh, doing something to change or to, to better the Affordable Care Act? Well, you know, Republicans have their own sort of pre existing
3: condition, which is they care about taxes and don't care about health care. Uh, I like to call them the Christian scientists of public policy. They mm. just don't do health care. And if you look at this bill, it really shows. The motivation for this bill was to cut the, the taxes in Obamacare, set up tax reform, and who really cares about the health care part? And uh, people who care about the health care part are people like Melissa Nance, people like me, people who actually want a stable system of
1: subsidies to help those with expensive illnesses. So if, if, if I'm running a major... A health insurer, if this law were to pass, say the Senate were to adopt the bill as, as written, does that provide me with more certainty? And if so, for how long? If you're an insurer?
4: Yeah.
3: I don't really think so because uh, there's there's still this question of um, – because the, the very part of Obamacare that is destabilizing the market is still on the books. Mm. And uh, the only way to solve that is either to repeal that, which we call community rating. It's a system <laughs> of price controls. Uh, or you can try to just subsidize the heck out of insurance companies to keep the markets from collapsing, t- to keep them from leaving. And uh, and and so your choices are – it's really a binary choice. You can either repeal Obamacare's regulations or you can just go whole hog on Obamacare and, 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 and do what the Democrats wanted to do is just
1: subsidize the heck out of the market. What, what do you see uh, all of this going? It goes to the Senate now, as, as I mentioned.
0: Um, they rewrite it, right? Well, whole, yeah,
1: whole, Wholly, right? Like it's going to be a whole new thing?
0: Yeah, there
3: are other uh, – there are senators who have already written uh, bills that they think would p- be a better approach. They're going to try to cobble together 50 senators. But uh, I, I don't know how – I don't know what can pass the Senate. But I think that, uh, yeah, I think the longer this drags out, the prob- probably the better the product will be because you will see more of the dislocation. you will get more of the stories from people like M- Melissa. And there'll Nance, be more urgency. And it'll yeah. focus their attention on the actual okay. problem, which is the regulations. But
0: isn't this debate no different than when you were doing healthcare debates on that beautiful lawn at the University of Virginia? <laughs> I mean, what's changed? We're arguing about do we want to be like Britain? Many people say yes. Many people say no. I believe Cato says no. But what's the difference between this conversation and your first healthcare chat at UVA a million years ago?
3: I wish there were more difference. Uh, for a while there, we had uh, Republicans uh, who p- were a we had Republicans opposed to this sort of Obamacare approach that it would be a step in the direction of a single-payer system. And now that they're sort of caving on this pledge that they made for seven years to repeal Obamacare, they're going to bring us closer in two ways. The first way is by giving a Republican uh, imprimatur to these ideas. And the second way is by uh, uh, taking such a drubbing at the polls that Democrats are going to take over Congress and they're going to want single-payer. But the
0: fact of the matter is I believe most polls show – People have an affection for some elements of the Affordable Care Act. How can you Catoize those constructive elements of Obamacare?
3: Well, they're not constructive; they're destructive. And polls
0: say that no, people but come like. Come on, not the whole thing. People yes, love it.
3: Yes, yes, the whole thing. People do not love it. We've done polling on this at the Cato Institute. We've asked people: uh, When you tie the costs to the benefit, to the supposed benefits Fair. of Obamacare,
0: do you still like it? And Democrats oppose it. Okay, so what's – senator? Where I need a common ground between Uwe Reinhardt, Michael Cannon, Senator Schumer, and I'll pick on Jeff Flake. Okay, where is the common ground to get our seventeen percent of GDP in control? So there's some sense of coherence.
3: I think that the the only way that we're going, you know, one of the necessary ingredients to getting uh, uh, a A bill through Congress. It's a step in the right direction is the president has to engage. He has to engage by saying that it is Obamacare's regulations that are reducing the quality of care for people in the exchanges. And that's the because that is what, that's the cost of Obamacare that actually motivates Democrats to oppose it. When you tell Democrats that these supposedly beneficial provisions actually reduced the quality of care that they and their family receive, they flip from 80% support to 55% opposition.
1: Was there or is there a piece of legislation that mirrors what you think should happen to the affordable care. It always surprised me. I lived in Washington for a very long time. And there was so much conversation about the repeal of Obamacare. I guess you could say the same thing of tax reform as well. There, there, there wasn't a piece of legislation ready to go. Is there or was there a piece of, of, of legislation that would, uh, would in, in some reflect what you think should happen to this law? I think there is. You know,
3: Rand Paul has a bill. Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky has a bill that would repeal Obamacare in full, provide some transition assistance for people with pre-existing conditions and vastly expand health savings accounts, which would actually start to bring down health care prices, which is the most important form of assistance we can provide to people with pre-existing conditions and low incomes. I have some quibbles uh, on the margins with how he goes about that. But, yeah, there's that. there's legislation
1: out there. Yep. a lot of politicians talk about the hardness of healthcare this is difficult stuff are there politicians who get it who who you admire their engagement with the issue who are who are willing to hear you out and and to to walk, walk through these uh, these thorny woods well,
3: uh, uh, like I said, Republicans have this preexisting condition where they don't do health care. And unfortunately, there's a real you know, a, sort of a wonk gap in Congress and outside of Congress where Democrats invest in this issue much more heavily than Republicans do. And they outmaneuver Republicans as a result. And so one of our jobs at the Cato Institute has been to try to uh, uh, bridge or make up that, that, that wonk gap. And, uh, you know, Obamacare helped for, for a time, but it didn't do enough to focus their
1: attention on this. We're going to talk about tax reform a little bit later, but let's, let's dovetail it quickly in the two minutes that, that we have yeah, you left. Got,
0: you got 112 seconds. <laughs> a lot
1: of people said to get to tax reform, we had to see some reform of the Affordable Care Act. Do you buy that argument? Uh, do you think it's going to forestall movement on tax reform not having this done?
3: Well, what it'll do is it'll make it harder to make the tax reduction permanent because of some weird Senate budget rules. And that is really what motivated the House to pass this awful health care bill. It, because it does cut taxes, and so it facilitates tax reform. And Republicans are playing to the
1: stereotype, which is all they care about is cutting taxes, and they don't care about healthcare. Tom, you didn't ask your what happens in twelve months question. What happens well, in twelve? months? in twelve? Well, let me,
0: not to not to the Cadillac plans. We've got what is it? Is it John Tucker a VW plan we have, or is it a Cadillac plan? VW oh, Beetle we had plan.
1: The, uh, we had the Bentley plan. The Bentley plan. Okay,
0: <laughs> but it's not a joke. I mean, do the people of East Tennessee and namely eighteen other geographies, where are these people in in twelve months?
3: Uh, that's hard to say. I don't think it's. Uh... It's hard to say. Uh, I, I, I see two possible outcomes. One, Congress actually repeals the regulations that are causing this problem and, and in the same legislation provides some assistance for people like Melissa Nance. Or they just try to put Band-Aids on this and we have yeah. more and more stories like that and more and more yeah. people falling through the cracks.
0: How cool was it to have Alan Meltzer at Cato? Was it great, just meeting after meeting, time after time?
3: um, uh, He's he's an impressive person.
0: Yeah, a great loss to all of economics and to our policy in Washington. Michael Cannon is with the Cato Institute. Alan Meltzer was with Carnegie Mellon University. David Gura and Tom Keene worldwide, coast to coast, in New York, together. This is Bloomberg. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated Member, SIPC. There's something new from Bloomberg. It's called Lens. Lens. Starting right now, you can use the Bloomberg iOS app off your iPhone or iPad or our new Google Chrome extension to read any news story on any website, scan it, and then instantly see the news story's relevant market data from Bloomberg. In addition, see all the bios of the key people mentioned in the story. It's called Lens, and it is just that, a lens into the people and the data of any story you may be reading again lens brings you the power of bloomberg's news and data download our ios app or search for the bloomberg extension at the chrome store to try lens out learn more at bloomberg.com/lens
1: David Gurra and Tom Keene in New York. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. We had the pleasure of speaking with retired Admiral James Stavridis last week while he was in Washington preparing to head up to the Dirksen building to testify before a Senate committee on cybersecurity. He did that. And a day later, there was a huge malware attack, ransomware attack worldwide. We're still figuring out the source of that. There's still concern about it spreading. Admiral James Stavridis, now dean of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, joins us. It's Admiral Stavridis, great to speak with you once again uh, describe what we saw here on Friday, the degree to which you were worried about this uh, beforehand and how worried we should be that we could see something like this happen again and perhaps again and again and again.
5: I was very worried when I testified, and I'm even more worried now. And let's face it, uh, David, this is going to be a rolling thunder of a series of attacks. This is this particular one was derived from tools that were, if you will, released into the wild from the National Security Agency. They're very potent. They can be manipulated. We should expect more of this, unfortunately. On that
1: note, I read the the blog post by the president of Microsoft, uh, that being uh, one Brad Smith, and he said uh, the government should treat this attack as a a wake-up call. And he said uh, this attack provides yet another example of why the stockpiling of vulnerabilities by governments is such a problem. Here you have some particular expertise. Uh, Why is the government stockpiling all this? What would a company like Microsoft like to see the government do?
5: Well, let's uh, think of two kind of similar looming towers. One was Pearl Harbor, and another one was 9-11. In both cases, the nation took a devastating blow, and afterwards we convened a blue-ribbon commission and looked at what we need to do. Yeah. Uh, this time, you can see this looming tower. Let's get that group of smart people together and tell us what we need to do to protect ourselves.
0: James Stravitas with us with Fletcher School. Bloomberg Surveillance This Morning Worldwide brought to you by Invesco. Looking for investment views. Invesco's high conviction. Portfolio managers, are just a click away. Go to Invesco.com slash U.S. to subscribe to the Invesco blog and follow at Invesco U.S. On Twitter. Okay, Admiral, so we had Pearl Harbor. No one saw it uh, coming, except maybe Halsey will put a third of the fleet out to (laughs) sea. Where's Admiral King? Where's the Admiral (laughs) King of cybersecurity to give us the urgency to get up on the table and start screaming?
5: I think it it reposes in the business world. So it's people like Eric Schmidt. uh, It is people like Bill Gates. It is people like Dan Schulman of PayPal. They see this looming tower, and that's why you're hearing them, as yeah. I am, talking about the danger ahead. Well, on Windows, in the where, world.
0: where's Microsoft? You know, I was going my Walter Cronkite imitation today from Moscow to Maine. Okay, great. <laughs> Microsoft. I got all the M's in there. Where is Microsoft if this is a core Windows issue? Uh, they need to uh, be prepared for more
5: of this. And what is different, Tom, is the release of these tools from the National Security Agency. They are lethal devices. And I assure you, in Washington State today, those engineers are all hands on deck to try and be prepared for the next wave that's coming.
1: How fierce is the the competition for talent here? You've unveiled a proposal here for a new service academy focused on on cybersecurity. Just in terms of how many people are trained and able to do this kind of work, how fierce is the competition?
5: The short answer is not enough. The competition is beyond fierce. It's white hot. And we are going to have to ask our young men and women, as they do in the other branches of the military, to stand and deliver in a cyber force. Here's the good news. It doesn't have to be massive. We don't need hundreds of thousands of people, but we need five to 10,000 dedicated cyber warriors who can stand and respond to these kind of attacks, whether they come, in this case, from cyber criminals or from nation states or from terrorists.
0: Do you assume, Admiral, that because these people are evil, they'll always be one step ahead of our good technology intentions? I think so in
5: the case of cyber crime. Another way to put it, Tom, is that um, almost inevitably offense will overcome defense in this world. So... You have to treat these cyber criminals the way we've treated yeah. pirates at sea. You need a global response to them.
0: Okay, folks, I failed. I tried to get through this Trump fee with the admiral. I yeah. can't. What makes a good FBI director a wise one? Uh, it, first
5: of all, he or she has to be unbiased. Secondly, a law enforcement professional. I would argue someone who's been to law school, who's served at the highest levels. Of advising, and number three, uh, the ability to speak truth to power. I think James Comey had those attributes, uh, but he was burned by this president. Now we're going to have to ask another American to step into a very fraught situation.
0: James Stravitas is at Fletcher School. His book is fantastic. I'll put it out on Twitter here uh, in a moment on leadership. It is just absolutely out. It's short. You know, just typical Stavitis, uh, uh, David. It's just short, right to the point. And,
1: and the syllabus for you. I know you've been reading into it's some great. of the books you, you recommend. I'm, I'm
0: like doing the voracious reading thing. That's <laughs> what I'm doing to try to keep calm, given this news flow from Kevin Cirilli. Yeah. What did you observe this weekend, David, in the Washington zeitgeist?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see how fast all of this plays out. The White House is very eager to get somebody yeah. to be helming the, the FBI. We'll see if they're able to do that. Admiral Stavridis. Talking about retail over these last couple of weeks, Howard Davidovich joined us last week, Shelley Banjo, columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly as well, painting a picture for us of the uh, bleak retail scene here in the U.S. Joining us now uh, is Oliver Chan. He is uh, with uh, Cowan & Company. Great to have him as always. So, Oliver, I look at the companies you cover, the, the three dozen or so that you're, you're covering. How similar is the narrative, is the story among those three dozen companies?
4: Yeah, what we do have in terms of a similar narrative is really the decline of physical store traffic in terms of footfall. Um, However, it's it's not true everywhere. I would say um, department stores and mall-based retailers are seeing uh, the brunt of this. On the other hand, um, I cover a wide swath of over 30 stocks. Luxury goods uh, in terms of the luxury spending environment, that's been great. And then deep value. So customers want to shop at outlets. They want to shop at off-pricers like tjx and ross and so it's not all doom and gloom but there is a lot of doom and gloom
1: we'll get to the luxury space in just a minute let's start with uh, with macy's which is where the story began during uh, earnings season last last week i look at your your note about macy's and you say that it's uh, a company on a journey uh, how much longer are investors prepared to give this company as it travels on
4: um, it is on this journey. It's at the epicenter of a lot of problems and disruption in the industry. Um, I mean, investors have really penalized the stock, so the multiples come in tremendously to, to below 10 times, about seven times PE multiple. The industry is around uh, 14 to 15 when things are normal. So investors um, have really penalized the valuation. How long will this take? This disruption occurring with store closures is quite painful and, and will take multiple years. So negative comp store closures, um, it, the, it looks like a, t- a rough spot for, for a while and Macy's is trying their best.
1: Part of your, your prescription here is for Macy's to reinvent product lead times. How difficult is that for, for a, for a yeah. retailer to do?
4: It is challenging because it's an organizational challenge in terms of restructuring the right people in the right place at the right time. But Macy's has about a one-year lead time, and retailers such as TJ Maxx work on one to two quarters. And retailers such as Primark and H&M and Inditex can work as short as a month or a few weeks. So Macy's needs to shrink it, Um, and that's the name of the game.
0: Oliver Chen with us at Cowan on Retail. Oliver, one of your great strengths is the kids. You look at specialty retail and you look at what the kids want and they don't want. Is any of this discussion we're having a generational shift away from the Internet, away from Amazon? When you look at the kids today, is there just a different way they consume versus before?
4: there is there's profound transformations happening and one of the key things is authenticity and really being true to yourself and you do you so a lot of the macy story has been the consolidation and the sameness factor which just isn't as appealing you want things that really you know show your personal style so Macy's needs to radically reinvent products. Also, keep in mind experiences and experiential uh, has really transformed. So the stores need to be entertaining, and everybody wants to um, really display what they're doing on social media. And then casualization in terms of uh, really the, the yoga pen is here to stay, Tom, in terms yeah, of Yeah, I, I felt day. the same
0: thing this weekend. <laughs> what the hell is ca- <laughs> Why you? This guy's on never again. What is casualization? <laughs>
4: Um, it's kind of the opposite of your bow ties, and oh. your fancy, but basically, um, you know, athleisure is the new formal wear yeah. CFA? in terms of the prestige. Oh, stop. Yeah.
0: CFA Institute, uh, word for that on level three CFA, David Gurr is slob. We, okay, continue. We
1: are printing new words here every day on Bloomberg Surveillance. Oliver, you mentioned luxury at the top. Let me go there into this $2.4 billion deal, coach buying Kate Spade. Does that deal make sense to you. I walk by the, the Madison Avenue coach house, see all that coaches investing in becoming a luxury brand. This is something we've talked about with Jelly Banjo, our colleague here at Bloomberg Gadfly uh, about as well. Uh, does the deal make sense to you?
4: Yeah, it does, because we think there's a lot of synergies, specifically um, Kate Spade can expand in China and Japan, also Coach has a leading leather supply chain capability, and Coach is really building America's uh, conglomerate in terms of a modern luxury platform. Uh, we cover the European luxury retailers such as uh, Richemont, Cartier, as well as Louis Vuitton, which we're recommending LVMH, but Coach, uh, Coach's approach will be different, it'll be inclusive. In terms of a house of modern luxury brands, we like that thesis. And we also think Kate Spade skews very attractively towards millennials. And, and everybody does want youth, and it's important for the long-term health and growth of, the, of, a, of a platform.
1: Who's the competitor there? When you look at American houses trying to get into that luxury space to compete with some of those European brands you mentioned, uh, who stands a chance of rivaling them?
4: Well, we have a really limited set of luxury within the United States, so Coach kind of stands alone because they have very um, good handbag store product and marketing execution. The other players we have are Tiffany, Ralph Lauren, uh, Sotheby's. Sotheby's is really on an awesome journey um, becoming a much more modern in, in their approach and broadening appeal, but Coach yeah. is really unique in terms of being okay. aiming for multi-brand.
0: You've used the word journey twice. Oliver, the only thing I know- know about retail is when my wallet's on a journey to Gucci, it comes back lighter. Oliver Chen, thank you, Alan, <laughs> this morning. Greatly appreciate for seriously folks, he does just terrific work across a really wide group of retail yeah. should frame the congressman Kevin Brady as being north of North of Houston, and uh, in the Woodlands, and and I, I love one of the articles on the Woodlands again, north of Houston, the eighth district up above uh, above that is it's a safe place if you don't like snakes because there's only three venomous ones, <laughs> which is it's 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 a different part of the country. Kevin Brady joins us uh, now of the Texas eighth congressional. Uh, district. He's chairman of House Ways and Means Committee. Chairman, are you distracted by all going on at the White House, or can you actually commit legislation through the end of this year?
6: Yes, I can. So thanks for having me uh, this morning. Wonderful to have. And the answer is, uh, yeah, we're completely, completely focused on uh, tax reform. So is the president's tax team as well. And so I think one of the important things here two weeks ago when the uh, the president's tax team talked about his principles. What they also laid out was the, um, the timetable head, which is for the House, the White House and Senate to work together to see if we can't unify behind a single tax plan. I think that is critically important uh, if we can uh, finish that out. Uh, and I think it uh, uh, better assures that we can finish this in 2017, which is our goal. Chairman Brady, how did you react when you saw that one pager uh, as it's called, from the White House,
1: those 200 words, those principles that you just described. When I talk to guests here at Bloomberg, uh, executives, accountants, people from uh, the business world, they've been operating off of your blueprint, which is uh, more fulsome than that document we got from the White House. What do you do with that one-page piece of paper uh, you got from the White House?
6: Well, actually, I was, I was pretty encouraged because, you know, there's about 80 percent agreement uh, on the key um, Issues. Uh, we still have some work to do. Obviously, there's some differences on the rates and some on the design as well. The family um, portion of this, which I think keeps getting lost in discussion, uh, was very close. The, the two were very close. And so, well, we, I think we start from a, a very solid foundation. So I was, I was encouraged. You've
1: got that 20% left then. One fifth of this thing to, to sort out. I imagine part of that is this border adjusted tax. Uh, were you disappointed to see the yeah. White House not embrace that?
6: No, not necessarily. Our discussions with them have been pretty positive. Look, I think the way Secretary Mnuchin talked about it the morning, uh, earlier that morning on that day, was accurate, which he said, in effect, he said the way that, the pro- that provision was originally introduced won't work, but we'll work with the House uh, going forward to see if we can't uh, design it and make that work. I think that's exactly uh, accurate. Here's what we're doing. Uh, we know what our competitors do in China, Europe, Mexico and Canada. They beat us on lower rates. They beat America by no longer taxing worldwide, and they border adjust. We made in the House a conscious decision to go straight after our competitors, and the principle is this in border adjustability, which is, look, do we want to keep the status quo that encourages jobs to move overseas and actually favors foreign products and workers over U.S. products and workers, or do we want to... tax everyone equally in the United States, so you have true competition for the first time. And it not only eliminates every tax incentive for companies to move their jobs and research overseas, it actually creates strong incentives to, to bring them back to the United States. We're going to make the argument and bring the case in a new design, by the way, of border adjustability to our discussions with the White House and the Senate.
0: Mr Brady you have a wonderful experience in this nation from the, the spine of the midwest from south dakota on down uh, uh-huh. to texas when when you when you look at the importance of the us senate how will they rewrite trump care do you look for them to do a complete redo that then you will have to compromise on
6: you know i don't know that's a great question i don't know the answer yet what I'm What I'm encouraged by is that I think they'll take the key provisions from the House and continue to improve upon it. For example, uh, we know that in, in these two big steps we're taking beyond repeal, those two big steps being let's let's restore the free market of insurance so people have broader choices. Let's restore state control rather than Washington control, so more innovative so the states can design health care better to meet their needs. In that is this individual tax credit that can travel with people from job to job, state to state, home to start a business or raise a family, even into those early retirement years. Uh, What we noticed is that those in the 50- to 64-year-old range frankly need a a more muscular tax credit at that point in their life. The House sent over, um, gosh, almost $90 billion dollars to the Senate, you know, we we expect them to use those dollars uh, to muscle up, uh, power up that part of the tax okay. credit for uh, Americans in that age right. rate. That's one example. Uh,
0: Chairman Brady, thank you so much. David Gerd and I look forward to speaking to you yeah, don't be a stranger. again. be yep. Mr. Brady is from the 8th Congressional District, just north of Houston, uh, in Texas.